Well, what a blessing to be back with you. I thought about you many times while I was gone. I hope you thought about me as well every time you came and I wasn't standing here. But I'm, I'm told that you were in good hands and I'm grateful for uh, how God provides. Uh, the Word is the Word. The teacher, in some sense, is sort of, uh, you know, give or take. It really is just a matter of our being teachable and being open to God to speak to us, regardless of who is standing in front of a microphone. Well, it was a great uh, trip. I won't give you all the details of it, but the first uh, two weeks were was a tour that I led in Greece and Turkey and Rome, uh, following the steps of the Apostle Paul. It was it was great and it was exhausting. And then right after that, uh, my cameraman and I filmed for about a week and a half in Rome and London, the British Museum, and uh, then in Jordan for a few days. So it was, it, was, uh, it was a lot. It was too long. I don't know that I want to be gone that long ever again, to be honest. I want to split it up a little bit better than I did. So anyway, I got back Thursday, so I'm still sort of jet-lagging. So if I all of a sudden fall asleep while I'm standing here, just throw something at me, and, uh, and we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, I'll join you in sleeping, because I notice that some of you do that anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I'll be in good company. Well, once I went to a Christian bookstore... And I had heard that a brand new book was out by one of my favorite Christian authors. And as I went, and there it was. I mean, they had it front and center. It was prominent. They had this big display on it. I got all excited. I opened it up and started thumbing through it and thought, this looks kind of familiar. And kept thumbing through it, and I thought, this is the book called blah, blah, blah. It was a different book. And I looked back at the copyright, and what they had done is given a brand new cover, brand new title, but same content. And I thought, I'm not buying this book. I bought this book 10 years ago. It just was a brand new look, and it was selling like hotcakes. And I thought, you know what? That's all right. People probably haven't read it or don't remember that they've read it, and, uh, and they think they're getting a brand new book. But it's so, I, I kind of left there with mixed feelings, sort of disappointed because I was looking forward to a new book. But at the same time, I was sort of reminded of how mesmerized we get with what's new. And we can just put a new cover, a new title on something that is old, but give it this feeling of brand new, and we approach it with a different perspective. We sort of have this natural curiosity, but we have this, I don't know, sort of naivete that latest is greatest. And this even works in boxes of cereal, I've noticed. Like walking down the cereal aisle, I saw one cereal box that looked exactly the same, except they had this big label across that said, new and improved. And I thought, you know, all that really means is old but repackaged. <laughs> the same is true with Christian books, as is with cereal. And this fascination, though, with new is really nothing new. As far back 3,000 years ago, the uh, old wise Solomon wrote, quote, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. 
Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10. Solomon says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. We just repackage it. When the Apostle Paul came to a group of philosophers in Athens who were always discussing, the, the book of Acts tells us in Acts 17, they were always discussing the latest and greatest, or they were always discussing what is new. And they came to Paul because Paul was talking about something new. What are you doing, John? We need new batteries. <laughs> I just noticed you keep walking around <laughs> holding the thing up, so. You're not distracting or anything, I just was curious. <laughs> You're keeping me, keeping me away from the jet lag. So the Apostle Paul is on Mars Hill talking to these people that are just interested in what's new, and he's preaching Jesus, and they, ha they say, hey, this sounds new. And Paul says, you know, actually it's not. This is the message from the Old Testament that has been around forever. It's just the fulfillment of all God's old promises. When it comes to the Word of God, our fascination with what is new takes no exception. We've got new study Bibles, we've got new this, new that related to the Word. In fact, we even have in the Scripture, in a sense it's biblical, sing to the Lord a new song. Keep it fresh, keep it relevant for this, this new generation, or I should say reveal how it is relevant to this new generation. Even the book of Deuteronomy was the same content, in a sense, repackaged for a new generation. So there is something that's okay and healthy about it, as long as what we're changing is the method of communication and not the message itself. That is the big challenge. A Sunday school teacher one time asked her children, who can name for me the three Johns in the New Testament? And one kid raised her hand and said, I can. First John, second John, third John. <laughs> Pretty sharp kid. Well, let's look together at second John. Second John. And by the way, I was given this book before I came up here, and I already have this book. So if anybody would like to have the Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology, it's an excellent book, by the way. It's yours free. The fastest one up here gets it, just like the pools of Bethesda. First one in the water gets healed. First one up here afterwards gets the book. Or you can come up right now. John's doing it anyway. So, Second John. Well, we're continuing our long time series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible. We are at the tail end of the, of the Word of God here, getting really close. Second John, Third John, Jude, and then Revelation. So just a few weeks, we will finish up this series. But Second John, this is a small book. Sometimes it's called the, the postcard section of the New Testament because you could literally write it uh, on a single sheet of paper. Second John, written by the Apostle John as are the other epistles by his name as the Gospel of John as well as the book of Revelation. Uh, each of these, except for Revelation, was probably written by John as an old man in Ephesus. Uh, the church tradition is very strong that John spent his last days uh, at Ephesus. And then, of course, uh, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos, received the book of Revelation and then was released and probably died at Ephesus. But 2 John has a wonderful uh, theme 
of which we will get right into because when John only has 13 verses, you're not going to waste a lot of time getting right into it, and he doesn't. Look at verse 1. John writes, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So there's a lot of debate, I guess, a lot of opinions on who this is actually written to. Now, the elder is clearly the author, John, but who's this chosen lady and her children? Some will adamantly say that it is a lady with children. Others will say that John is simply referring to a church with its uh, members. I don't have a strong opinion on it. I probably lean more to the side of a church and its members because at the third, the very last verse of this book says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So either John is with the sister of this lady and she has children too, or this is a metaphor of the church here and its Christians uh, give you greetings. Also, if we were to just take a peek at Third John, look at Third John real quick, you see a lot of the same verbiage, and there it's clearly to a church and not to a person. So anyway, for whatever it's worth, it's written to Christians, whether it's a family or whether it's a church family. And the Apostle John says he is writing for the sake of the truth, and a truth that abides with us forever. What is this truth? What is this truth? Well, he didn't spell it out just quite yet, though he's about to get into it. But he does greet them with these wonderful three items, or wonderful three bits of truth, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, first of all, is God's unmerited favor. That is that which he gives us which we don't deserve. Mercy is God's compassion on us in our helpless state. And then peace is the result of that, the result of the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God and peace of mind. And he ends with the words there at the end, truth and love. And this really is John's theme. The theme of the whole book of Second John, all 13 verses of it, focuses on truth and love. Not just truth, not just love, but truth and love. You're going to see these uh, paired together all throughout this book, and it's very significant, very uh, significant in our lives as well. well. Let's continue. Verse 4. He says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. John does something here that all of us should make it a habit of doing. He commends them. He finds them doing something right, and he affirms them. He says, I am very glad, verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. We can spot error a mile away. It is so easy to 
uh, feel that we are God's gift of criticism to the body of Christ. Criticism comes pretty easy, doesn't it? I mean, the hard part's keeping our mouth shut when we see it. But affirming, that's hard. Why is it so hard for us to do that? When you see something good, affirm it. You see somebody doing something well in the body of Christ, let them know you see it and encourage them. They will remember you the rest of their life because it is so rare that people do that. It is so rare. Be a person who is an affirmer. The Apostle John begins here by saying, you're walking in the truth. I've noticed that, and I want to commend that. And he defines walking in the truth as loving one another and obeying God's commands. So the source of truth leaves the realm of fuzzy. What is truth? You know, kind of like Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? It seems sort of like this, you know, this philosophical question. You know, where, where do we find truth? John doesn't leave it fuzzy. He tells us God's commandments. The Word of God is our source of truth. And amazingly, even though the Apostle John is literally writing Scripture, he is literally writing a new book of the Bible, he doesn't give us anything extra and profound. He simply points back to what we already know and says, live the truth, love one another. He points to something ancient. Jesus was asked this question as well, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you can boil it down to one word, it's love. Love God and love God's people. He sums up, it sums up all of God's commands. So the Apostle John keeps it real simple. He says, love. And I appreciate this about John. I appreciate this about uh, Paul. You know, Paul obviously gave us a lot of new truth. But at the same time, when he wrote to the Colossians, he told them, it's no trouble for me to write to you the same thing again and again. In fact, it's a safeguard for you. This is why we read the Bible on a regular basis, not because you know, we've forgotten it so much, it's because we need to be reminded on a regular basis what we already know. Because success in the Christian life, let me say it very specifically, success in your Christian life and in my Christian life comes by doing the basics well. Not the big, not the big uh, uh, complicated parts of the Christian life, the basics. Bible reading, simple obedience, day by day, faithful walking with God, prayer. These are things that are so simple we often take them for granted like, oh yeah, you know, I do that. But are you really doing that? I mean, is that really the bedrock of your walk with God? It needs to be, and it needs to be in my life as well. Keep it simple. When Peter wrote his final epistle, he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words of God. Well, a song we've heard, probably all of us have heard, it was that old Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Ba, 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 ba. All you need is love. Ba, 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 ba. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. <laughs> I'm not going to sing any more of that song. 
I actually looked at the rest of the lyrics and couldn't understand what they meant. But uh, anyway, but that part we do understand. All you need is love. And who's going to argue with that? You could say that anywhere, and everyone is going to say absolutely. But what is love? Ah, now we got to fight. All we need is love. Absolutely. What is love? Well, I'll tell you what love is. And then you say, well, I don't think that's what love is. You see, everyone's got their own opinion of what love is, but we all agree all we need is love. What does God mean when he says love one another? Everyone would say that, love one another. Great. What does God mean by that? Because God just said it. The word here for love in our English language, I mean, we, you know, we have all kinds of meanings for word love. Remember that old Tom T. Hall song, I Love? I love little baby ducks. This really wasn't supposed to be a, a singing, <laughs> singing time, but it's so illustrative of, of next week. We sing next week. The hymns sing is next week. Well, these aren't hymns. We ought to be singing Tom T. Hall at our, at our hymn sing. But, but you remember that song? I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, something, you know, and then he keeps going. But it's like, I love all these different things. And then the chorus, and I love you too. Boy, how'd you like to be that woman? <laughs> you just put me on the level of a pickup truck. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, and little baby ducks. But we use love in different ways, don't we? When I say I love pizza and I say I love my wife, I'd better be talking about two different types of love. The New Testament has a number of original words for our one word love. And if we just read the English, we may not know it. But there's the love of friendship that we have and we share today. That's one word in the original language. There is the love of lovers between one another. That's a definitely a different word. And then you've got this word. It's the word that we often call agape. That's the uh, noun, but it's often used here in the sense of a verb. The, uh, the, the verb agapao is a verb that refers to a sacrificial act. On the app, on the on the uh, benefit of someone else, it uh, it refers to sacrificial love. So when when God says love one another, He means sacrifice for one another. In fact, it it is something that's pictured when Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's a different song, isn't it? All I need is sacrificial love. Blah 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 blah. That's not the way the song goes, is it? Not at all. That's not quite as snappy as, as the original. Well, here's the first principle that we can pull from the text. We walk in truth when we love sacrificially. We walk in truth when we love sacrificially. How do you know when you have really loved someone when it is a sacrifice? When you are giving something of yourself. You sacrifice so that someone else benefits, or you sacrifice for the glory of God. Nobody sees it but God alone. You see, God's not just content to say love one another. He gives examples. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's just one example. Principle applies definitely to husbands, but the principles 
the same word is used here for everybody. Single, married, husbands, wives, everybody sacrificially love one another. That means you surrender your will. It means you surrender your time, lots and lots of time. It means you surrender your money so that someone else may benefit. You see, Christian love is not just the chorus of a song. It's not this fuzzy kumbaya feeling. There's nothing fuzzy about it. It hurts. It is a love of sacrifice. It's the love that Jesus had when he laid down his life on the cross. And throughout this letter, John links love with truth. Without truth, we don't know what love is. It's just a chorus of a song that uh, everyone would agree to. But God's word, God's commands are the truth that links with love. And God's commands, we're told, are unchanging. Verse 2 says, they abide with us forever. The, tr the truth is that truth without love is pointless. Truth without love is pointless. There's no application to truth. So it works both ways. Without truth, we don't know what love is, but without love, there's no application of truth. Paul would write to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But some men have wandered from these things, Paul told him. It's easy to do. It's really easy to do. The Apostle Paul also wrote, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. In the same book, in 1 Corinthians, he says, if I have all knowledge but I do not have love, I am nothing. So truth and love go together. Love and truth go together. All you need is love. No, you need love and truth. They are not mutually exclusive. They are two sides of the same coin. Why should we do this? He goes on to tell us, verse 7. Why should we be so grounded in this kind of love and truth? Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. John tells us that the difference between a believer and a deceiver is rooted in Jesus Christ and who he is, the person of Christ. And we're told as Jesus coming in the flesh, this is loaded with implications. That Jesus coming in the flesh means that Jesus is God the Son. It means that Jesus is eternal, because if he, was, if he was coming in the flesh, that means he existed before the flesh. He is eternal. And it also tells us that God became man. It's this marvelous doctrine of the incarnation, where somehow all the fullness of deity now exists in bodily form. And John says if... if people are teaching something other than this, they're deceivers. It is the doctrine of the Antichrist, in fact. He uses that word here in verse 7. Now, keep your place here, if you would, and turn back a page to 1 John chapter 4, where John said something very similar. Very similar. 1 John 4, he writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. So turn back to 2 John. You see, he said it before, and he is telling them again and again, don't just listen and accept what you hear somebody teaching from the scriptures. Be discerning. Test the spirit, meaning test the teaching, because not everybody teaches the truth. When Paul went to Berea, remember, he explained about Jesus Christ, and the Bereans said, wait a minute, Paul, sounds good, but I'm going to check the scriptures. It says they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Can you imagine? <laughs> Apostle Paul, yeah, that's great. I'm going to check what the Word says, Paul. Isn't that, a, isn't that fantastic? Paul, I'm certain, applauded them for that. In fact, uh, the book of Acts says that the Bereans were more noble than those, I think, in Thessalonica because those in Thessalonica didn't do that. They ran Paul out of town. But when they checked Paul's message against the Scriptures, they found out what Paul was saying was true. Ah, now they embraced Paul's message and they believed. We need to have that same mindset. Now, there's probably nobody, in fact, I'm certain there's nobody around here. You're never going to hear anybody in the pulpit, you know, Chuck or anybody else or anybody in any of our adult fellowships who's going to willingly tell you something that's wrong. But be judicial. I mean, I have occasionally listened to, like, messages I've taught right here, and I'll hear it and go, oh, that's wrong. And I realized that I had said something, you know, not intentionally, but like I'd misquoted something, and I was like, oh, rats, now that's out there for everybody to hear. <laughs> so be judicial. Compare what I say to Scripture. Compare what our pastor says to Scripture. No one's going to intentionally lead you astray, but believe me, the source of truth is not men of God, it is the Word of God, and it will always be that way. It should always be that way. If it ever gets to be anything else, then all of a sudden you just say, why do we have scriptures? Why don't we just, why don't we just listen to you know, someone tell us the truth as opposed to reading it for ourselves? I read an article a few Christmases back about a Protestant minister in Ireland who finally admitted after 30 years in the ministry that he doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And I wrote down what he said. He said this, quote, I don't believe the traditional understanding of Christmas that God took human form and was born as a babe in Bethlehem. To my mind, Jesus and John the Baptist also were mistaken and misguided end-time prophets. Jesus was neither a mediator nor a savior, neither superhuman nor divine. We need to leave him to his place in history and move on. <laughs> to me, the key word there is, to my mind, he says. To my mind, Jesus and John the Baptist were mistaken, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. This is just the Enlightenment spilling over into our modern age. Remember the Enlightenment back in the 18th century? Uh, our founding fathers were products of the Enlightenment, and uh, many of them were deists in the sense that they had the mindset that the Scripture is to be evaluated. It's not that the Scripture evaluates us, we evaluate Scripture. And there is this sense of, uh, of Thomas Paine's uh, 
age of reason that he's basically said, go ahead, have the guts to use your brain, is what Thomas Paine said in that book. And many people took that hook, line, and sinker in the sense that are way too far of evaluating Scripture and being over Scripture as opposed to allowing Scripture to be over them. Well, look at what John says happens if you do that. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. That's pretty strong words. You go too far and you do not abide in the teaching of Christ, the Word of God, you do not have God. I had a, a great friend years ago who told me that he was going to seminary, and I asked him what seminary, and he told me, and I didn't know anything about the seminary, so I thought I wanted to know a little bit about it. And uh, I wrote the seminary a letter, I think. This was quite a while back. And they, um, they called me. And it was this, uh, this, the seminary called me, and this lady said, hey, I heard that you got some questions about the seminary. I said, yeah, I sure do. I'm just curious what your doctrinal statement is. And they said, oh, well, we don't have a doctrinal statement. I said, oh, well, well, then tell me, you know, what you believe about the Bible. Oh, the Bible. <laughs> she said, well, you know, we, everyone's free to believe what they want about that. We don't force our opinions on others. I said, what do you teach if, if you're not going to teach the Bible? And um, anyway, we talked for a little bit more, and then I, and I just decided to get real basic and said, well, tell me what a person has to believe to, to be allowed in the seminary. Oh, well, you know, just, it was seriously sort of hemming and hawing. Um, believe in God? And I didn't say this, but I wanted to say it. So you're telling me Satan could join your seminary because he believes in God. Instead, I said, so you mean a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness could could uh, enroll? She said, oh yeah, we have Mormons, Catholics, Baptists, all denominations. Notice again what verse 9 says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. There is, there is a reality that, that God, not people, God draws the line and says, if we go beyond the Scripture, We've gone too far. This is John's own words. Well, the second principle, uh, I hope, doesn't apply to anybody in here. Uh, actually, it applies to everybody in here. <laughs> this is jet lag kicking in for me. Number two, principle number two is this. A true relationship with God stems from a correct belief in Jesus Christ. A true relationship with God stems from a correct belief in Jesus Christ. We've got to have a correct belief in Jesus Christ if we're going to have a true relationship with God. We don't just believe Jesus was this historical figure and leave him in his place in history and move on. No, the Bible tells us very clearly he is the center of history. He is the goal of history. That everything prior to his coming led up to that, and everything since his coming looks back to that, but also looks forward to his coming again. That the second coming of Jesus Christ, according to the book of Revelation, is the goal of history. All history is racing to that end. 
And whether we know it or not, we're all looking forward to that. A lot of us are just looking forward to our trip to Disneyland, but the reality is we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. This is our hope. This is our longing. And to have that true hope, a true relationship with God, how do you have that? Well, John told us here in sort of simple terms, Jesus has come in the flesh, but in the Gospel of John, he made it very clear all throughout that wonderful, simple-to-read gospel. And if you've got a question about, about who Jesus is, about why he matters, the Gospel of John is a great book to read. It's simple and easy to understand. But I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of it, that God loves us, but there's something that separates us from God. It's our sin. God is holy, and he can't abide sin in his presence. And so if sin is the problem, sin has to be removed. The good news is he's done that. He has removed our sin when Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't just a bad day that week. He chose to die on the cross to pay for our sins, and then his resurrection three days later proved that God had accepted his payment on our behalf. And we're told all we have to do is just believe it. You don't have to change your life. You just have to change your thinking and believe. And when you do, your sins are forgiven. It's too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true because it is miraculous. It sounds too easy, but since when is surrendering everything to God easy? That's tough. And I know that's hard. And if you're struggling with that decision, I pray that you'll have the courage to read the Gospel of John and to press into it with all your heart. A true relationship with God stems from a correct belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He came in the flesh. And then notice John also says, watch yourselves, verse 8, that you do not lose what we have accomplished. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. What he means is, he explains, that you may receive a full reward. You want your reward to be full. You want it to be all it can potentially be. And if we believe the lies of the world that they tell us about Jesus Christ, and for some reason we begin to believe the heresy of the world, then there is a loss of reward, not a loss of salvation. There was a scene in the movie Return of the Jedi. Have you seen that movie? Uh, no one's going to admit you've seen it, but you've seen it. <laughs> Return of the Jedi, where after discovering that Darth Vader was his father, horror of horrors, Luke Skywalker tells Ben Kenobi, he says, you told me Vader murdered my father. And you remember what Ben Kenobi said? He said, well, you know, he kind of explained this and that, and it turns out he didn't really murder him, he just kind of uh, betrayed in the sense that he became a different person. And then he says this, so you see, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. <laughs> This is the difference between subjective and objective truth. If I say pizza is delicious and I also say the sky is blue, both are true, aren't they? But when I make the statement about pizza, is that a statement that represents pizza or is that a statement that represents me? It represents me, the subject doing the talking. That's why it's called subjective truth. You may not like pizza, but this subject likes pizza. 
So that's why it's called subjective truth. It's truth about the subject, not about the object. But if I say the sky is blue, now we're talking about something that's not my opinion, but that everyone would say it is blue. It is truth about the object. That's why it's called objective truth. Subjective truth is true about me. Objective truth is true about the object. Our culture blurs these and sees that subjective truth is truth, when the reality is there is objective truth that we cannot change, like a blue sky, like gravity, etc. Walk down the street today and ask 10 different people what is truth, you'll get 12 different answers. <laughs> Even among those who call themselves born-again Christians, the Barna Research Group, last I saw, said that two-thirds doubt any absolute truth. But you know, when we're faced with the reality of relative truth or subjective truth, we can't live with the, with the consequences of it. Objective truth is undeniable in a world that universally rejects murder, rape, child abuse, and pain. When we clamor for peace and freedom and dignity, we assume a view of the world that includes God's absolutes. To deny absolute truth is basically we have to admit that Mother Teresa lived no more or better or worse a life than Adolf Hitler. Because if we say, well, she lived a better life, why? By what standard are we judging that? Any objection to the answer why, well, if somebody says something and you say, well, why? And then there's an answer to that. And you say, well, why? And then there's an answer to that. And it goes on and it goes on. But when it stops, that's objective. That's unchangeable. There's got to be ultimately a why. And we, we know that that ultimate is God. Remember, our kids used to do this to us. You remember? Eat your green beans. Why? Well, because they're good for you. Why? Ultimately, what did it boil down to? Because I say so. <laughs> That's objective truth as far as our kids are concerned. And that is objective truth for us, the Word of God, because God says so. When it comes to determining truth, it is a whole lot easier today to be a mystic than it is to be biblically literate. God has written it down. It's right here, and it's hard work to spade it out, but it's right there. Peter tells us everything we need for life and godliness is in his precious promises everything we need for life and godliness is in his precious promises so we just got to spend time in god's truth in order to know god's truth well look at the implication if anybody doesn't believe the truth that jesus christ came in the flesh look verse 10 john writes if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Look at verse 10 again. Anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this, do not receive him into your, that doesn't sound very loving. John, you just told me to love one another, and now you're telling me you don't even let this guy in my house. That's not loving, is it? It sounds pretty hypocritical. John is showing us that love doesn't mean love at all costs. 
Remember, it's truth and love. They're, they go together. They're two sides of the same coin. That truth without love, uh, or love without truth, is called compromise. So here's the final principle. It's pretty simple, but boy, it's tough to live. Sacrificial love should never sacrifice truth. Sacrificial love should never sacrifice truth. To have sacrificial love doesn't mean that you uh, refuse to love somebody, that you refuse to support error. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell the truth in kindness. That's why Paul tells us, speak the truth in love. It's tough. That is tough to do. Speak the truth in love. The world sees Christianity as a bunch of rule people. They see us as people who wag our fingers and saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. They don't hear truth spoken in love. I think if we were to speak the truth in love, that somehow if we could communicate in a way that was loving as opposed to condemning, then the gospel would make a whole lot more sense to people. Truth and love. I was at the grocery store one time, and there was this in the checkout line, and there was an older man in front of me. Of course, the older I get, the younger these older men get. But, but, but that, at that time, it was an older man in front of me, and I could tell he wasn't really having a great day. He was just kind of, you know, in, in the doldrums. And anyway, the checker was just sort of oblivious to that, and the checker said, hey, are you having a great day? And the man just, he literally didn't answer, he just shook his head. And he paid and walked out. Well, after he was out of earshot, the checker said to me, that man was too bristly. Bristly. I almost had to look up what bristly means, but I guess context, I could figure it out. And I said, you know, I think he was just honest. And the checker said, well, that's too much. there's too much of that around here. <laughs> I said, what, honesty? He goes, yeah. There's an archaeology magazine that I subscribed to that noted the death of a scholar who had been a champion for ecumenicism and for a voice for women and minorities. And the article ended with a quote from this guy. And I thought his words were significant in the worst way. Listen to what he says, quote, The Christian Bible includes sayings that have caused much pain, both to Jews and to women. Thus I have felt called to seek forms of interpretation which can counteract such undesirable side effects of the Holy Scriptures. What makes me so sad about that statement is not the desire to comfort those or to give voice to minorities or to those who have been somehow hurt or abused or marginalized. I applaud that. My concern is somehow with the mindset that elevates self above Scripture or really above God, that somehow God's love and God's word are in contradiction. There's this strange similarity between what this scholar wrote and another quote we're much more familiar with, did God really say you must not eat any tree from any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. Death, now that's an undesirable side effect, isn't it? 
maybe we should reinterpret Genesis 3 in such a way. The Bible is full of so-called undesirable side effects. I mean, I read the Bible like every day and there's stuff in there I don't like. <laughs> a lot in there I don't like because it talks about me and it reveals me. And God shows me that I desperately need a Savior every day. Um, so it may seem obvious, but Christianity stands or falls with its view of Jesus in the Scriptures. And rather than to try to change the meaning of the Bible, which in effect makes it meaningless, we should instead assume the limitations of our brain that we just don't understand the level at which God is speaking. And as time goes on, we have a greater understanding, but boy, sometimes it is hard. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has died for our sin. He has been raised. And then he demonstrates that love for us by his supreme sacrifice. This is truth, John says, and this is the standard. And if anybody that comes along and teaches something different, he says, don't allow them into your house. The idea there is don't support what they're doing. That's the bottom line. Don't support it. Don't affirm it. Don't give money to it. Don't in any way endorse it because they've gone too far and don't abide in the truth. Jesus Christ gave us that ultimate example of truth and love, the sacrificial love, and John says that's the kind of love that we need to have for one another. Let's pray. Father, it's been a long time, more than likely, since we've read Second John, yet how relevant. The day John wrote this, he had clearly a burden on his heart that truth and love would not be sacrificed one for the other, but they would go together. And that's our challenge. We want to be loving because we want to be accepted, and yet the, the desire to speak the truth is often something that we don't do in love. Give us the grace to do both, to love well, to speak the truth in love, to not merely watch out for the teaching of others, but also to watch ourselves, as John writes, that we don't slip into error, that we are on a regular basis in the Scriptures and allowing the Scriptures to wash over us to convict us of those sins, whether they're small or large, to give us the courage to confess those sins before you, that our fellowship would be restored, that you'd give us the wisdom to not only speak the truth, but also to apply it to our own lives on a daily, ongoing basis, and that when we fail, that we would immediately rush to the loving arms of our Lord Jesus and keep going, for his mercies are new every day. Give us this twofold passion to know your word, the objective truth, and also to love your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.